All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman, and today we are doing a Monday mailbag coming at you after the Falcons Week 13 loss of the Saints. We'll be answering your listener questions. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, guys, you know me, I'm Aaron Freeman, been covering the Falcons for many years. I'm on Twitter at FalcFans, and of course, the host of this world-renowned Locked on Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. And today is a Monday mailbag episode coming at you a couple of days removed from the Falcons Thanksgiving night loss to the New Orleans Saints in week 13. I will be getting into many of your questions that you sent in over the weekend for me to answer on today's episode. However, before we get there, I do want to give you a little bit of a disclaimer in that I thought I was pretty confident when I said, oh, we'll do a Monday mailbag on Friday, that the all 22 for this Saints game would be up by the time I sat down and recorded Sunday night or, or potentially Saturday evening. Because as far as I know, that's generally what happens with the Thursday games. But apparently, I guess the NFL Game Pass people had the weekend off as well due to the holidays. And so as of Sunday afternoon, the All-22 film was not up for the Thursday night games. And so therefore, some of the questions that you guys sent in were specific questions about that game and questions that... I could easily answer had I been able to sit down and watch the All-22 in its entirety, and I did not get that opportunity. So I want to say that first and foremost because some of these questions I might have to revisit later in this week when I do actually get access to the All-22, which I'm hoping will be up Monday by the time you guys are listening to this. I will be sitting down or preparing to sit down to watch the All-22. So with that being said, let's get into our first question, which is kind of related to that. That is from Joshua Woods. He asked, what was going on with the offense last night besides Cutter? It seemed like Matt was either trigger shy or didn't fully trust his young wide receivers or nothing was open, but he was just holding on to the ball way too much last night. Was he holding on to the ball too long or was nothing open downfield? Also, the two-minute offense was terrible. It was like they couldn't even do any quick outs to move the ball. So again, since I didn't watch the film yet, I can't give you exact details on sort of what it was, um, and I will just sort of base it off of rewatching large chunks of the game on the television copy, but basically I decided, like, what, I'm not going to learn anything new from rewatching the television copy, uh, that I just wait till the All-22, so I didn't watch the entirety of the game of the television copy, just like the first half and the fourth quarter. So maybe there were some things that happened in the third quarter that I may have missed out on, but um, I think it was mostly a combination of the things that you said. I think, you know, Matt Ryan does have a tendency to be a little bit trigger shy. That has not been as big an issue in the last couple of seasons as it was earlier in his career. But I would imagine one of the contributing factors to him being a little bit more trigger shy was the pressure that he was facing and the fact that he wasn't fully on the same page, doesn't have that rapport of playing with many of these receivers for more than, you know, basically half a season. Uh, at this point in time, or three quarters of a season. So I don't know if he had a lot of confidence in his new wide receivers in these tight windows to come down with the ball. I'm also sure plenty of times it was due to guys not getting open. I know certainly at the end of the game, uh, the Saints were a lot more willing to press guys. 
and that led to some of the issues that the team was dealing with. You know, there are basically two main ways in which you want to be able to beat press. Typically, you know, you you want the bigger, stronger guys that are just too big to press. The Julio Joneses, the DK Metcalfs, the Mike Evans, great examples of that. The other way that you want is you want to be fast guys. That basically the team is too afraid to press you because they know if the guy doesn't get that jam at the line of scrimmage, your guy is going to run past them. So that's why guys like Tyreek Hill and Deshaun Jackson and, yes, even the great Marvin Hall weren't as pressed as often as maybe some other guys of similar stature that they are just because they have that great speed. And so the only way that you can sort of press those speed guys and even the bigger guys to a certain extent as well, because many of those guys, the best are the big guys that have 4-4 or sub-4-4 speed like the guys I mentioned, is that you have to give safety help over the top, um, which then allows offenses to be a little bit more able to exploit defenses because they get they tend to be a little bit more predictable with their coverages which again smart offensive coordinators can exploit and this goes to one of the issues I had with Muhammad Sanu and why I wasn't as in love with Muhammad Sanu as maybe many other people were Um, but basically in a nutshell when Julio Jones is on the field every other receiver generally is going to get one-on-ones because the teams are going to give safety help to Julio's side of the field and ideally opposite him you're going to have another explosive vertical threat that can exploit those one-on-ones in a major way because that guy's not going to get as much safety help on that side of the field and that wide receiver can exploit those to big plays down the field and you know typically if you have a guy that can do that then potentially it opens the door for those teams to give that side of the field safety help in addition to that which again goes back to what we're talking about where you're giving it's forcing teams to play more predictable coverages. For example, if teams decide to play cover two to give both outside receivers help, Julio Jones and the guy opposite, in this case, Calvin Ridley, you know, that then leaves the open, the middle of the field open against cover two, where you can have a, a slot receiver that can attack the deep middle or a seam splitting tight end. Those guys can exploit that vulnerability in the cover two and still generate big plays. If teams decide, okay, we're going to play more cover three uh, to sort of protect against the deep ball to the two outside threats, that makes that defense, you know, that particular coverage is very vulnerable to the four verticals concept. Um, It also creates opportunities underneath uh, for a dynamic running back, as we've seen for guys like Alvin Kamara and, and Christian McCaffrey that have you know, really exploited the Falcons cover three over the many years. And so that's part of the reason why I never really shed a particular tear for the loss of Sanu. It's why I don't value his skill set to the same degree, to the high degree that maybe others do, is because I also sort of feel like the potential of the Falcons offense is much higher with a different an arguably better number two option, someone that is more along the lines of a Calvin Ridley or Taylor Gabriel that can be more of a vertical threat. At least in theory, you know, the idea is that not having the Falcons offense tailored to where your number two is a player like Sanu, you know, a chain moving slot receiver, um, opens up the Falcons offense to greater potential, as I've sort of explained. But of course, that's in theory. So, you know, ultimately you have to execute or or apply that theory properly by getting those types of receivers in the fold. But going back to your question, certainly uh, in in the Saints game and going back to the Week 12 game, one of the things I did notice was that certain receivers that the Falcons had, like Christian Blake and and Alameda Zakir, really struggled to beat press towards the end of the game. 
you know, Taylor Gabriel wasn't great against press, um, but I think in large part due to the presence of Julio Jones and how the Falcons exploit, used Gabriel, particularly in 2016, not so much in 2017, allowed the amount of press that he saw was limited. Um, I thought Christian Blake, rewatching the game, did a, a pretty solid job on the outside, particularly when the Saints were employing that off coverage. But I did notice on that final drive, you know, the Falcons had like three consecutive final drives at the end of the game because of the onsides. But I did notice on that final drive that the Saints started playing a lot more press. And I think it was really effective at throwing off the timing of those throws because a guy like Blake is just not particularly, he doesn't fit the, the mold. You know, he's a taller guy, but he's like a, a thin 6'2". He's like a 6'2", 180 or something like that. You know, and he's not particularly explosive out of his breaks. So he's not a guy that can really beat press in, in a lot of ways. And certainly that's going to be something I'm going to pay a little bit more attention to when I watch the All-22. And, you know, it's going to be one of those things going back to what I was talking about with this idea of sort of building up this Falcons wide receiver core. It's going to be one of the reasons why, as I've just sort of explained, why I'm going to be a lot more of a lar- a bigger advocate for the Falcons upgrading their wide receiver core than a lot of other people in my shoes are going to be because they're going to sit here and say things like, oh, I thought Christian Blake is, is solid. I think Russell Gage is pretty solid. And it's like, it's not to say that they're, those guys are bad players. I think they're fine. It's not that I think the, the Blakes and the Gages and the Sanus and the Hardys of the world are bad r- wide receivers. I think they're fine. NFL wide receivers, and they do bring things, certain things to the table. But my personal opinion is that the way that a team should build their wide receiver core, and particularly the Falcons in this case, is that you want to have four dynamic, explosive wide receivers and then two chain movers. And I think the way that the Falcons, certainly in this past season, have built their wide receiver core is having like four chain movers and then two explosive wide receivers. And I think when you, one of those guys goes down, as it was the case with Julio Jones, it really changes the dynamic of your wide receiver core. And when you don't have guys, particularly in the instance that Matt Ryan has a long you know, rapport with, when you don't have a Sanu or a Hardy, guys that he's played many, many years with and thrown a ton of passes, Hooper also fits into that sort of same mold as more of a chain-moving type of slot receiver than necessarily an explosive playmaker at the tight end position when you're missing these sort of reliable options um in w- among that group then you're going to see some of the issues that i think we saw last thursday so long answer to uh that question but just something to keep in mind so when you're hearing me talk about hey the falcons the explosive fast wide receivers this offseason you'll understand a little bit at least uh, understand why i'm sort of stressing that because i i again i think blake and gage and those guys a perfectly solid fourth and fifth wide receivers, but I don't think they should be core pieces of your your uh, wide receiver core. I think you need to get those dynamic, you need to get more Gabriels, more Ridleys, more Julios, those types of guys, and then sort of plug and play and fit the Gages and the Blakes and the Snoos and the Hardys wherever you can to sort of fill out the group rather than sort of building a wide receiver core around those guys. So that's why when you hear me be like, Ugh, on certain wide receivers, that's part of the reason. So we'll continue today's conversation. We'll get into some of the Falcons' pass protection issues coming up on today's episode. 
Um, but before we get there, I want to let you guys know that you guys should be checking out the NBA side of the Lockdown Podcast Network, where you can find a daily podcast devoted to all 30 NBA teams, including the Hawks, uh, by checking out the Lockdown Hawks podcast hosted by Brad Rowland. Find that on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So we know the Falcons are looking to increase their confidence on the football field, but you guys can gain a little bit of extra confidence in the bedroom by checking out BlueChew.com. BlueChew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they'll work up to twice as fast as a pill. BlueChew is prescribed online and ships straight to your door in a discreet package, so there's no in-person doctor's visits, no waiting in line at the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. Blue Chew is made in the USA and since it's prepared and shipped direct, it's cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, you can take advantage of this special offer by visiting bluechew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code locked on. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B L U E chew.com. Promo code locked on to try it for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, and faster choice. So we got a second question from Joshua Woods. He asks, I couldn't see live, but the commentators mentioned that there was no help from the tight ends chipping in on pass protection. Were they just not adjusting? Well, I think a lot of this had to do with personnel. And Jaden Graham got hurt with about four minutes left in the game. He came back in for at least one play. I do recall him seeing later in the, in, in the game for one snap. But essentially what happened after that point when he first got hurt and it was came on a play where he made a catch, and then one of the Saints DBs chopped his knees, and he, he came out of the game. It was about with four minutes left in the game, maybe like 3.56 or something like that. The Falcons decided basically for the rest of the game to play their 10 personnel, which is that four wide receiver set with only one running back in the backfield and no tight ends. Um, and this is partially one of the reasons why I was hoping, you know, obviously I didn't foresee this happening uh, with Graham getting hurt, but... This is part of the reason why I was hoping that the Falcons would go out and sign a tight end like Logan Paulson rather than elevating uh, Carson Meyer from the practice squad. You know, it's not because Paulson is particularly good, but you wouldn't have completely scrapped the tight end position out of the offense altogether for the final four minutes, presumably, as qu- or at least been as quick to do so with Paulson on the roster instead of Meyer. Um, and you know, the issue was cause they didn't trust Meyer to be able to do the job in that situation. Essentially Gage and Hardy started to be used as dual slot receivers. And you saw more of them chipping in those instances. And then on the final drive, the Falcons were more content to just use the basic air quotes, basic six man protections with the five offensive linemen and the running back. In, in their shotgun drives, and simply the reality was the running backs were just not up to snuff with the Saint to, to handle their pass protection duties with the Saints blitzing, and both Freeman and Hill struggled in that capacity. You know, it's, it's crazy with Demario Davis because he, he made a number of plays on those final uh, couple of plays blitzing, um, and it's just like, you know, I noticed this in the Week 10 game, but the Falcons really struggled to block him whenever he would rush the quarterback. Uh, in that game. I know Pro Football Focus credited him with six total pressures in in that Week 10 game, and he had like a 90 pass rushing grade in that game and whatnot, Um, and they just couldn't block him in that game. And so it wasn't that the Falcons weren't trying to chip guys, it just they couldn't really do the things that they were doing earlier 
on those um, earlier in the game because they were using Graham and, and Meyer and those guys at times to chip throughout the game. Um, but they couldn't at the end of the game because they basically had to scrap the tight end position uh, for the final four minutes because of injuries. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is part of the reason for why I tend to get a little bit more uptight um, about these third string roster battles when people sort of look at those and be like, why are you so angry about, why are you so fired up about a, a third or fourth string battle? Um, it's like, it's not that big a deal. And it's like, yeah, 99% of the time, it's not a big deal. You're absolutely right. It's not going to be a thing. And no one's going to sit here and suggest that, oh, Jaden Graham getting hurt cost the Falcons the game. But it did change how they had to play the rest of the game. And so this is part of the reason why some of these third string roster battles that seem to be just kind of like whatever, it kind of matters because because the Falcons didn't have another tight end on their team. They didn't have an Eric Salbert. They didn't have a Logan Paulson as their sort of option. They had to completely scrap a large percentage of their playbook. They couldn't use the 11 personnel, the three wide receiver sets that they normally use, which makes up about 60, 65% of their play calling. Um, you know, they, they had basically had to scrap any other, uh, sets that they used multiple tight ends with, uh, which again is like another 30% of their play calling. So like 95% of their playbook just had to get completely thrown away in the final four minutes of the game, or they had to basically adapt everything to, uh, to their 10 personnel with four wide receivers. Um, and so their only other really option at that point in time was to put Ty Sambrello out there as a sixth offensive lineman and, if you did that, then you take away one less receiver that the Falcons could actually have in that route. And sort of that's a balance that you have to sort of play with. So that's one of the reasons why some of these things do matter a little bit. I don't want anybody to interpret this as me saying like, oh, if the Falcons hadn't trade Eric Saubert, they would have won this game. I'm, no, I'm not saying that. But I do think it is one of those things where when you don't have guys waiting in the wings when you don't have those guys that have been on the practice squad you know the quote-unquote plan d guys that have been around for one or two years um that you can basically plug on the practice squad and say okay this guy's been around for one or two years and we know that if we bring him up from the practice squad that he knows the offense because he's been around for a couple of years or keeping a, a fourth string tight end on the roster in this case potentially an eric Sauber or a logan paulson just in the event because you know that that guy is going to be able to do the job better than Carson Meyer. You know, those are the sort of the things why some of these deep roster battles, why it does kind of matter who's the 48th guy, who's the 52nd guy on the roster, who are the 10 guys in the practice squad, because they can have ramifications uh, for how you decide to deploy your personnel in games because you basically have a guy in Carson Meyer who's been on the practice squad for a large portion of this season, but is not a guy that you want to trust to put out there with Matt Ryan because Matt Ryan, you know, hasn't really played with that guy at all. Um, so it kind of bit the Falcons in the butt. And we'll come back and, and wrap up today's episode by talking about whether or not Dirt Cutter deserves another shot in 2020. I'm sure you guys want to stay tuned to hear that coming up on today's episode. But you guys know that college football season is beginning to wrap up. And you guys might want to check out uh, a whole host of daily lockdown podcasts devoted to your favorite college football team. Maybe you're a Georgia Bulldogs supporter out there. You can check out the Lockdown Bulldogs podcast on whatever your favorite podcast platform that you're listening to this podcast, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify.
So we got two questions that are semi-related. One of them takes one side of the coin, the other one takes the other side. The first one comes from our good friend Joshua Woods. When Quinn loses his job, do you think there will be wholesale change or just head coach? I hate to see Ryan go through another offensive coordinator change and take a year to adjust, but man, I'll start rooting for the Saints if they keep Cutter. Just kidding. I hate the Saints, but seriously, one more run up the middle on first down. I guess I'm asking, (laughs) is there any way Cutter stays on next year? That's from Joshua Woods. And Brandon, a.k.a. Skullface, asks, I'm on board with directing my pitchfork towards Quinn and TD, but Dirk, I'm not as sure about if we get a new offensive coordinator, then it would be the fourth new offensive coordinator in five years for the Falcons. If Atlanta doesn't get a head coach that is an offensive guru, then I think we should give Dirk another year. Do you think Dirk should get another year? Brandon, no. I don't think Dirk should get another year. I don't think Dirk will stay next year unless the Falcons decide to hire Todd Monken as their, as their new head coach, like someone who has a long relationship with Dirk Cutter. So, um, you know, I'm not as concerned about Matt Ryan having to learn a new offense. You know, do you, I mean, it, it, it's not to say it here and, and sort of say it's meaningless. It, it certainly is meaningful. I do wonder, though, because the Falcon fans are now so much concerned with all the discontinuity with play calling, when they look at quarterbacks like Sam Bradford and Marcus Mariota and Joe Flacco and all the coordinator changes that those guys have undergone in their careers and maybe a contributing factor to why those guys haven't necessarily had the amount of success that people thought they would when they were drafted, do they empathize a little bit more with those guys? Or, or you know, are they going to be a little bit more willing to trash those guys as they may have been in the past. But for me, I guess it is what it is. I think really it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of making wholesale changes, you know, because I don't necessarily believe that maintaining continuity with this current team is a priority. Um, and a lot of that centers around my sort of belief that because I think a lot of that centers on this belief that this team is like right on the cusp or is really talented and they don't need to tweak a lot they, or they just need to tweak a lot rather than make a lot of major changes. And I'm just kind of like, you know, if, if we hire a guy, he wants to blow it up then let him blow it up because I, I just kind of think, and I've said this before in the podcast, I feel like people kind of overrate how good a team the Falcon team is. It's not to say that they're bad, but I mean, obviously they're playing poorly this year. They look like a bad team this year, but like, I think, I don't feel like this team is on the cusp of anything other than just being like an 8-8 eight and eight sort of team. And, you know, to, to illust- better illustrate the point, let's go back to the 2016 season. And you look at the games where the Falcons scored 31 or more points in that season. They were 12-0 and 0 in those games. They had six, six of those 12 games. They scored at least 40 points. Now you compare that to, let's say, the 2016 Colts, who were, a, I think, the eighth highest scoring offense. They were a good offense, but far from historic offense a normally what we would call quote-unquote a normally good offense that year and um, they had only six games where they scored 31 or more points and only one game where they scored 40 plus so that's basically like a six game difference between those things and let me remind you that in 2016 when the Falcons didn't score 31 or more points they were bad they were one in six that year so if you have you know, six games where instead of dropping 35, 38, 42, or 45 points like the Falcons had that year, and you're only scoring 24 to 28 points in those games, how many of those games are the, is that 2016 Falcon team winning? So 
the point I'm trying to get to is that you can argue that the historic output of that Falcons offense was mostly due to play calling, not talent, which, I, again, is a controversial opinion among this fan base. It's not as controversial as it was when people like myself were first espousing that opinion in 2017, now in 2019. But, you know, it's still a controversial opinion among many in our fan base. But the point is that you can argue that three to six games in that 2016 season, the Falcons won mostly due to play calling. You know, let's just assume that, you know, the six-game difference between the Falcons' offense in that year and the, and the Colts' offense, and then you just split the difference and you go three and three in those six games where you're you're scoring 28 points instead of 38 points. Um, that means, you know, the Falcons are an 8-18 eight and 8 team in 2016 and, and missed the playoffs. So if, if you look back at the Dan Quinn era and you say, okay, in 2015 they were 8-8, eight and eight, in 2016 they were 8-8, eight and eight, 2017 they were 10-6, and six, 2018 they were 7 and 9 and and then whatever they finished this year is anybody really talking about how talented this Falcon team is given that scenario you just sort of change one variable the play calling in 2016 I don't think anybody's having the argument that they're been having for months and years with how talented this team is I think the Falcons certainly have the talent to be a playoff team I just never have really bought into the notion that this team has the talent to be a Super Bowl team. And I think one of the reasons why I push back a little bit against the whole idea of, of all-in for Chase Young or, or whatever the case may be, or really the idea of trading up for any prospect, even going back to Ed Oliver or whoever uh, this past year, like I'm not against the idea of trading up, but I'm just not necessarily keen on the idea, is because I think it perpetuates the idea that this team is like one or two pieces away from greatness. And I think that's been a mistake on how the Falcons have operated for basically the last 10 years. Like, you go back to 2010, you know, they were the number one seed that year, but I remember thinking, like, they were, like, the fourth best team in the playoffs that year. I don't recall thinking that they would, you know, that they would beat Green Bay. I I felt like they would be competitive against Green Bay, but I don't recall thinking that they were a better team than Green Bay. Um, 2011, I thought they would beat the Giants, but I figured that they'd probably lose in the second round of the playoffs. In 2012, I didn't think they were better than the Seahawks or the 49ers. So the fact that they made it as far as they did was certainly a a huge surprise to me. In 2013, I I expected that team to to fall back down to earth, you know, and be sort of a 9-7 and team. Obviously, they fell much harder than I expected them to be, but that regression wasn't a surprise to me. That 2014 team I didn't think was a playoff team. I had them going 8-8 that year. 2015, I thought they would basically be the same team, but maybe overachieve uh, in 2015 and, and maybe go to like 10 and 6. And after they got up to that 5 and 0 start, I was like, oh, okay, like this is going to happen. Obviously, they didn't sustain it. Um, and then in 2016, they actually were that overachieving team that I thought they might have been the previous year for the aforementioned reasons. 2017, I think you can certainly make uh, the argument that they were legit, you know, a 10 win team that year. Um, but, you know, if Carson Wentz stays healthy, you know, they're at best the third best NFC team in the year, that year behind Philadelphia and Minnesota. And, you know, they're, we're not, I don't think we're sitting there saying like, oh, this team is so much more talented than the Saints or Rams were in in those years. And then obviously 2018, they underachieved partially due to injuries, partially due to laying some stinkers. And then obviously this year they're underachieving, but probably not to the degree that I think a lot of people think they are. Like, to me, this team probably should be at least three wins better than what they are right now. But I don't know if I would be like they should be like five or six wins better than what they are right now. You know what I'm saying? 
you know, the idea, all of that to say is the idea behind reloading or rebuilding, whatever you want to call it, it's not as problematic to me as maybe it is to other people. That other people that kind of think this team is on the verge of greatness and, and therefore their Super Bowl window is closing. And I'm like, my kind of perspective on it is like, what Super Bowl window? Like they need to, you know, build the 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 house, the build the frame or whatever to create a window. Right now they're just kind of staring at a blank wall or just kind of a hole in the wall that they might have put a some saran wrap over and, and they're calling it a Super Bowl window if you get sort of my drift. So like the idea to me of this team, you know, going eight and eight over the next two to three years or whatever, so that, you know, four or five years down the road, they can legitimately be that 12 and four, 13 and three type of team that is legitimately a Super Bowl team. Like if that's what needs to happen, then so be it. That's kind of how I feel about it. So for me, the idea of sort of maintaining continuity isn't as big a priority to me as it may be to other people. I just kind of feel like, you know, if Matt Ryan has to learn a new offense so that we can, you know, if he needs to walk so that we can run, you know, a couple of years down the road, then so be it, you know, and I'm willing to do that. So, you know, this idea that we need to maintain continuity because the next coach needs to come in and and win right away, I, I don't know. I just, I don't really buy into that notion. So, I guess, you know, I don't know if that really answers your guys' question, but I guess the long story short is like, yeah, I'd be, I would happily get rid of Dirt Cutter next year. And, and like, I don't have a problem with blowing up the team. Um, you know, I, again, it goes back to one of the things I've talked about previously on the podcast is like my, my, my biggest fear is they, they hire whoever, right? And that guy has some success early in, in, in his tenure, whether it's next year or the year after and this team goes to the playoffs and maybe they look a little dangerous in the playoffs and we start hyping up this team like, see, you know, we're one of the most talented teams and we go right back to where I think we've made mistakes in previous stints under pretty much every coach with the exception of Petrino because he didn't stay long enough to, to do this. But with Mora and, and Mike Smith and, and Dan Quinn is that we taste a little bit of success in those first two, three years and think that we're one of the best teams in the league, and we're really not. We're just kind of like, we overachieved. You know, we overachieved in 04. We overachieved in 2010. We overachieved in 2016. And then when we came back down to earth, everybody's sitting there saying, oh, it's because the coach is bad. And it's like, no, we just weren't as good as people thought we were in those previous years. And the problem is that instead of continuing to build up the roster, we kind of stopped doing that. We kind of just sort of rest on our laurels and think, oh, we've already assembled this great talent team and we don't need to continue to build this thing. And we need to go all in on a Julio Jones trade. We need to basically, oh, yeah, we can let Poe and Claiborne and all these other guys walk because we're going to turn Vic Beasley and and Tack and and all these guys into superstars. You know, oh, we don't need Robert Alford. You know, we got Isaiah Oliver. You know, again, I can go down the list. But, like, that's kind of my issue. And so when I'm critical of Arthur Blank, that's where it comes from. It's like we, we get this taste of success and we're like, oh, we, we've arrived. You know, and I use the analogy in the past on the podcast about being, like, halfway up the mountaintop and thinking we're at the summit or right below the summit. And it's like you're only halfway up the mountaintop. you still got a full day's hike to go or whatever to, to continue that metaphor rather than thinking that you're just like an hour away from the summit or, or whatever the case may be. So like that to me is the problem that we have. And I think many of the t- 
takes I've heard over the last year in, in recent weeks and months, and probably will continue to hear in the coming weeks and months, is kind of, to me, for lack of a better term, delusional about where this team is at. So again, the idea of just, like, I'm not saying that we need to blow things up because I think our foundation is good. I just don't think our foundation is as good as maybe other people think it is. You know, I think Matt Ryan, having Matt Ryan, Julio and Ridley and Hooper and, you know, Lindstrom and McGarry and Matthews, these guys on offense is a good foundation to have on offense, but I don't think that's enough on offense. I think that's just like, you know, six or however many good players I just named. And then you need to still go out there and get other players because Matt Ryan's not going to be at his peak forever. Julio Jones not going to be at his peak forever. You still need to invest in that side of the ball. Obviously, we know the defense needs more talent on that side of the ball. You need to continue to build there, all right, via the draft as, as well as via free agency. And, you know, if you want to get quick fixes on the defensive side of the ball, free agency is the way to go. And that just buys you time to continue to figure out, okay, who are the legitimate pieces? Is it Deion Jones? Is Deion Jones a foundational piece of our defense? Or is he kind of just a good player that's not a core piece? Is, you know, I think Grady, we kind of know Grady Jarrett is, but, you know, that's not necessarily set in stone. We don't know what Tack is. We don't know what Oliver is and Sheffield. And that's part of the reason why, like, you know, people are like, oh, I love this young cornerback group. And I'm like, do you? Like, I, again, I'm not sitting here saying that Oliver and Sheffield and, and these guys are bad, but I'm like, do we think any of these guys are anything more than sort of role players or complimentary starters? Like, that's all well and good. I'm not sitting here saying that that makes you a bad player or anything like that, but it's just like, I'm not sitting here looking at these guys as like core pieces of, of, of a team that's got Super Bowl aspirations. They're just kind of, you know, they're, I don't know. They're, to me right now, again, and we'll see what time says. I'm not saying that we have to give up on these guys or, or I'm writing these guys off. But right now, like, they're more in the Luke Stocker camp than they are in the Austin Hooper camp, if you get my drift. They're more in the Christian Blake realm than they are in the Calvin Ridley realm. You know what I'm saying? They're more in the Deidre Sinat category than they are in the Grady Jarrett category. If, if, you, if, you, if you hear where I'm coming from on that. So, like, I'm, like, part of it is, like, I'm willing to be patient to see if I'm wrong on that. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not necessarily firmly committed that, oh, these guys are the, are the pieces that we need to get the Zubo. Because I can foresee the scenario where the, we, we sit here and count on these guys being like core pieces. And then two years from now when we're like, oh, well, these guys are just like below average starters. And then we're trying to figure out why isn't this team a Super Bowl team? And it's like, oh, because you can't cover anybody. You know, <laughs> like the Mike Evanses and the Mike Thomases rip you a new one the Tyler Lockett's rip you a new one the Robert Woods is rip you a new one anytime you try to cover these guys so like you to me you can't be a Super Bowl team if you can't cover those guys you know what I'm saying so I don't know it's a very long-winded answer to just basically say like yeah if, if we want to make wholesale changes then make wholesale changes I'm not going to sit here and say that we have to blow things up but I do feel like we're not as close as maybe other people think we are. I, I, I just it seems like a lot of people just think like, oh, this team is secretly a, a great team, and it's like, are they? Or are they secretly an eight and eight team masquerading as a three and nine team? You know what I'm saying? Like, I would be fully on board with that notion, but the idea that they're like secretly they're like a good coach from unlocking themselves to be like this twelve and four type of team, 
I'm like, I don't know if I buy that, you know? Like, and if, and, and if for whatever reason they did manage to go 12 and 4 in 2020 or whatever, I would probably argue, oh, we're overachieving again and really we're closer to being an 8 and 8 team that because of various variables, soft schedule, healthy season, great play calling from a, a coordinator that winds up getting a head coaching job the following year, you know, and we're going to return back down to earth rather than assuming, oh, we can maintain this for the next couple of years. So that's kind of where I'm at on it. So I hope that answers your question. I know um, someone sent in a question about the throwback uniforms and when was the last time we won that? I don't know without spending 30 minutes on Google trying to figure that out because there isn't like, I couldn't find a, an easy to access place that has what jerseys the team wore in, in any given game. So it seems like it's been like three or four years since they've won a game. I feel like they did it either in 2016 or 2017 as recently when they won one of those games, but I, I honestly have no idea. It doesn't seem like it's been like eight years. It seems like it's more been like three years, but again, I don't know. Um, so if anybody knows that information, I'd be more than happy to pro- for you to provide me that feedback so I can share it with the fellow listeners out there on Twitter um, and on this podcast. And of course, if you want to ask questions for future Q&As, I'm sure we will have another one later this week where I'll be able to go a little bit deeper into the film of really the last two games since we didn't really do an All-22 review of, of the Week 12 game against the Buccaneers as well. So if you have any questions really about anything, but certainly the last two weeks of film, you can ask those via Twitter at LockedOnFalcons, via Facebook at LockedOnFalcons, or via email at LockedOnFalcons at mail.com. Until then, guys. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.